Obviously, the wilderness journey is, is a massive subject. It's based out of four significant books and actually some interesting parallels to the Gospels and that sort of level of information that flows through as well. I'd normally do this subject over six sessions, but uh, as I did for Harrogate last year on Hebrews, uh, we're going to have um, one easy session tonight. And what I want to do is to give that sense of the big picture of the wilderness journey. What's it about? What's its key theme? What was God's purpose in, in the wilderness? So, so let's get into it. We pick up the story in Egypt. And just imagine this sh scene. The, the shimmering heat of the furnace blasts across the scorched sand around. And it licks at a band of weary men who are stumbling under their heavy load towards a growing pile of newly fired bricks. As we watch, a, a man drops to the earth in sheer exhaustion and then is roughly pulled to his feet to stagger on. And across town, in his very dwelling, a, a young mother clutches at her precious newborn baby in terror. She's crying out for mercy as it's roughly dragged from her grasp and flung to the waiting soldiers. We're told the children of Israel were made to serve with rigor. The children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. Israel in Egypt are in complete desperation. They're desperate slaves. They're made to serve with rigor under the persecution of their cruel overlords, and there is no way out. They're trapped, desperate, and pathetic. And at last, at last, in that desperate need, they cry and they cry out again. And in the moment of that cry, while its echo still lingers around the desert sand, is born a process of deliverance of God's people that, that we will see encapsulates the perfection of God and who he is in all his glory and draws on every component of his glorious character. Is a desperate motley band of slaves are transformed at last into a victorious nation, Yahweh's people in a triumphant entry into their promised land. But, brothers and sisters, how deep the depths this people will test, how strongly they will struggle with their own weakness, and yet how sufficient will be the arm of God to protect and to teach and to guide them. And, and so it is with all of God's people, that realization of desperate need, of no way out, trapped in sin, with no hope of ever extracting ourselves. And we turn to the Father. And in that moment, a process of restoration is commenced that will carry us through the valley of death even and deliver us at last on the soil of the promised land. Yahweh's response to the cry of his children is full and powerful. But it's also deeply reasoned, we shall find, and deliberate. It's never an, a random act of avenging fury to protect his children. It's always that purposeful, deliberate response to develop and transform and to win over his people. We haven't got time, obviously, tonight to consider the judgments on Egypt, the plagues and Pharaoh's pride bringing the whole nation low. But it was a time of God's mighty acts that brought the, the greatest empire of the day to its knees. But as we shall ask so many times through the wilderness journey, why did God do it this particular way? Why not just simply extract Israel from Egypt in one mighty action as he so easily could have done? 
Why each of the plagues? Why the interplay with Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh? Why details like the Passover and the unleavened bread? Well, we're being taught that when we see the mighty acts of God, God wants us to look beyond the acts to understand the reason for those acts. He wants us to understand the perfection of his character that underpins it, the glory of the Father, that every action of the Father, every action in the wilderness and in our lives is an opportunity to come to know him in a much deeper, more profound way. We're being told to always look for the why. Why is the Father acting this way? And so we pick up the story then on the edge of Israel's formation as a nation in Exodus chapter 12. Now, Exodus 12 is a, is a chapter we know well, and, and again, we won't go into detail given what we're covering tonight on this, but this is the Passover, the introduction to the Passover. And, and it's, a, it's almost a strange sort of story that, that's introduced into the scene. We have all these judgments that are occurring against Egypt. But what we'll find is that this simple feast is actually the real point of the story. And it becomes a transition point between the judgment on Egypt and the redemption of God's people. You see, the Passover will tell us that God is going to judge Egypt. But in that judgment, he will also save his people. As the psalm says, God's rising in judgment to save the meek of the earth. And so in Exodus 12 and verse 2, Yahweh spake to Moses, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It's the first month of the year to you. So we're being told this is a new beginning. It's a beginning of months, the first month of the year. It's a new start that's about to occur. And we know this Passover feast well. It's clearly symbolic of our Lord Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb and of his death. He's crucified and died at precisely the time that the Passover lamb is slain. Paul says in Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So again, let's ask the question, why? Why was the Passover introduced at precisely this moment? Why of all things did this somewhat strange process occur now as they're getting ready to leave, to leave Egypt? When, it's, when Egypt is about to be decimated. And the first point is that it's clearly a change in perspective. The previous nine plagues had been miracles that had been to show God's absolute supremacy over the gods of Egypt. Each plague had conquered a god of Egypt, and it represented God's ability to overthrow Egypt. But the Passover, as I've said, is different now. Instead of God using his power to destroy the Egyptian gods, he's using his power to save his people. And so the Passover introduces God's ability to save his people from the death of the firstborn, the destruction of Egypt. Okay, so, so what's the real point of, of the Passover? We, yes, it is about the Passover lamb, clearly. So it is about the sacrifice and the work of Christ to us. But what we find as we go through Exodus 12 is actually that it's, there's, a, there's a, several other things which are really bound together in this concept of the Passover. And the first is that it clearly involves the concepts of the house, the home, the baith, as the Hebrew word is or the family within that house. Exodus 12, verse 3, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Verse 4, if the household or the neighbor next to his house is bad. Verse 7, you can see it there on the PowerPoint. There's time after time, 13 times through this chapter, the word bath is used. And that's in relation to the houses of Israel. So we find that God is using the Passover to save the families, the houses, the bath. The blood on the doorposts of the physical bath or house 
represented the salvation of the people who were within that house and their passing over by the destroying angel. So, yes, this is about the Passover lamb. Let's not mistake that. But that salvation gained by Christ our Passover is there so that it might deliver the houses or the bayat of Israel from the destroyer and from Egypt. See, these two concepts then become inextricably linked. But if we look again at, uh, at this concept, we find that, that there's more than just the houses. Because the chapter is also very clear about the concept of every man. And see again on the screen there, all or you know, every man, verse 3, speak to all of the congregation of Israel. Take them every man, every man according to his eating. Verse 6, the whole congregation of the assembly of the congregation, every man, all the children of Israel in their generations, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. So, so once again, we find this expansion of the ideas. It's not just the houses, but it's every man, every soul, the whole who is to be included there. So all are to share that Passover lamb. All the children of Israel in their generations, the whole assembly. So they're separate in their houses, as perhaps we all have been under this COVID circumstance, but, but we're absolutely united together. And so here at the very commencement of Israel as a nation, as Yahweh's people, the principles on which they are established is laid out. This is the beginning of the nation. And what's it done on? Well, Exodus 12 tells us it's established as a result of the sacrifice of Christ. Our ecclesias are established because of the sacrifice of Christ, but founded in our families in a way which encompasses every man and brings every man of that congregation together. But, but you'll see in reading also that there is also a third concept, and that is this idea of the congregation. Um, so Exodus 12, verse 2, this shall be uh, the beginning of, of months. It shall be the first month. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, sorry, that's in, in verse 3. Verse 47 talks about all the congregation, but have a look in verse 6 particularly. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it. Now that involves two words there. The whole assembly, the, the idea of assembly is the Hebrew word kahav, which is related to the idea of the ecclesia in the New Testament, where we get the concept of, of our ecclesia. And this, interestingly, is the first time that the word kahal is used about a specific group of, of people. It's been promised in the past to Jacob, and that in itself is a fascinating subject I would have liked to have covered, but we just can't tonight. Um, so uh, we can talk about it afterwards. But this is the first time that a group of people are called that kahal or that ecclesia. And the word congregation there, the word idah, is also the very first time that this is used in the Bible. So we're introduced in Exodus 12 in the concept of the Passover to the concept also of the ecclesia, the establishment of the first ecclesia. So there's every man, every soul in the families or bayeth, but who collectively make up the congregation or the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel. So what's the point? Well, the Passover lamb is inextricably linked with the, with the creation of the congregation or the ecclesia. When Yahweh first moves to save the congregation, he does so on the basis of the Passover lamb. So the principle is that the ecclesia can only exist because of the Passover lamb, but also that the purpose of the Passover lamb is to save, is to create the multitude or the ecclesia of God's people. The two ideas, the 
two matters become very symbiotic. There's the work of Christ and the creation of the Ecclesia, utterly interwoven. More particularly, they are one work in God's objective to create a multitude of people. And you've heard these concepts before, no doubt. God's at the heart and center of everything here. Christ is the basis of our salvation, forming a multitude of God's people, individuals and families, making up the ecclesia. We could say it's the concepts we know as God manifestation, the atonement and fellowship. And so this principle of God manifestation, that God desires to, to, to show his glory, his character and his fullness in everything and everyone upon earth, is the foundation of God's objective. But we know that he accomplishes this by the gracious provision of the atonement, which is consistent with his character. It's always, as we shall find tonight, always on the basis of that intimate working together of righteousness and kissed mercy. And that that outworking is revealed then in the concepts of fellowship, both with him, us with our father and his son, but also among all his people, as the congregation, the whole congregation of the Kahal of Israel. And so we haven't got time, as I said, to dig deep into this, but the point here is, is really clear, hopefully, that, that the, the concept of the Kahal is about a group of people who have been bound together, and it occurs first here at the Passover, that the basis of our ecclesial life is in Christ our Passover. So, so, yes, this is about the houses, the individual houses, but those houses are united together, every man of that congregation, to form the ecclesia of God. And the purpose of that lamb is the redemption of the, of the families of Israel to form the ecclesia, to take them through the wilderness and eventually bring them into the promised land. You see, this becomes actually the core, and, and while we've spent a bit of time on it, it becomes the core concepts of the wilderness journey. This is where the wilderness journey commences, right here, right at the beginning, through a journey that would take the ecclesia from slavery in Egypt to God's kingdom in the promised land. And ever since that time, every one of God's people in the ecclesia has been on exactly that same journey, fleeing from Egypt, baptized into Christ, and developed in the wilderness until we are brought at last by God's grace into the promised land. So here's the point. Is the practical lesson. If the purpose of the Passover is the creation of the kahal, the ecclesia, and that that kahal includes all the people, every man of the congregation, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, then it's our responsibility inside that kahal to help every member journey with us. It's God's work to bring every man of the congregation on that wilderness journey, but to do so, he uses his servants. He uses his son, the Passover lamb. He uses his angels to protect and to guide. But he uses us as his people to work within the ecclesial environment, to assist, to encourage, to admonish, to help. That's the work he's asked us to do. The Lord said, those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition. In John 17, in the shadow of the greatest Passover of all. So with that as a foundation for our wilderness journey, back in Egypt, we find the 
Passover blood is visible smeared down the doorpost of every bath, every house in Israel. The congealing blood dries where it's run down those posts. And inside the house, the intense coals needed to cook the lamb are dying down. The sizzle of the dripping fat has been replaced with a quiet peace as every member of the family begins to eat. Silently, an angel of Yahweh draws near the door of the house and seeing the sign of the blood upon the doorpost pauses for a moment. And we see perhaps that slight recognition towards the house, a smile on the face as another house in Israel is passed over and another bath stands redeemed. From the distance, a noise pierces the dark and then closer at hand, a shattering cry and another and then another until the whole land itself is wailing and Pharaoh's cry himself is added to the shrieking. Every firstborn in Egypt is dead and Egypt then convulses and vomits forth the children of Israel because God has saved his people. Having spoiled the Egyptians, God's people released from slavery after 400 years of bitter oppression, now march forth in victory. And we can only begin to imagine the joyfulness and the thankfulness of that moment that burst forth from them as they make their way out of the oppression of Egypt. We're told in Numbers 33, on the morrow after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with an high hand in the sight of all the Egyptians. Upon their gods also, Yahweh executed judgments. Or well, Exodus 13, but God led the people about and the children of Israel went up harnessed and ramped. Yahweh's host out of the land of Egypt. So it's not clear exactly where Israel were taken by the angel of Yahweh. There's lots of conjecture about to the exact spot in which they were taken, nor the exact spot on the Red Sea where they crossed. But we do know this very clearly, and I've, I've suggested a place here with the green arrow. It doesn't, it doesn't matter particularly, except the fact that they crossed the Red Sea. We know that Yahweh deliberately led them down to the edge of the Red Sea, to an area where they were trapped, where there was no way out. They were utterly trapped. There was the mountains all around surrounding them. The sea was in front where they couldn't go, and Pharaoh was thundering down behind them. We're told in Exodus that they were so trapped by the terrain that Pharaoh said of them, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, was his comment, in, in delight. We've got them, they're entangled. And again, we ask that question, why then? So, so why so early in their days as a nation? They just escaped from slavery in Egypt. Why so early did God deliberately lead them down into that trap where they were trapped in no way out? Well, again, we find it's this concept of, of God's using judgment to destroy Egypt and to save his people. But in saving his people, he teaches them to trust in him. Just have a look at these Psalms and, and you get this sense of what God was doing here. He led them on safely, Psalm 78, so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. Psalm 106, our fathers provoked them at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He redeemed them from the enemy. And Psalm 66, likewise, come and seal the works of God. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through on foot. There did we rejoice in them. For thou, O God, hast proved us, tried us as silver is tried. Caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou brought us out into a wealthy place. So, so God is using this concept 
of the of the Red Sea. He's using this this trapping in the Red Sea as a process of beginning to teach his people. And so what in our life? Well, it's exactly the, the same, isn't it? Sometimes in our life, whether personal or family or ecclesial, we suddenly find ourselves entangled in the wilderness. We've got impassable mountains, it feels like, on either side. We've got a, a wall of water that's in front of us and, and sin is raging down the valley behind us. We're trapped. There is no way out. And, and in that moment, we tend to challenge the wisdom of the Father or his capability to save, as if he's been unaware or, or has forsaken us. But know this in that moment, that the Father has deliberately led us to that place so that he can conquer sin and begin to show us that he has the power to deliver us from every situation we find ourselves in. See, this becomes the recurring concept, the recurring theme of the wilderness journey, that God is working with us. He's brought us into the wilderness so that he can develop us and at last to bring us into the promised land. And every action of the Father we find in the wilderness journey is deliberate. It's never reactive. It's never haphazard. Every action has multiple layers with multiple outcomes being achieved for multiple people. He's accomplishing something in your life, something in those close to you, something in others around at exactly the same time. His wisdom is incredible and his power completely unstoppable, but he is in control and he will deliver us, baptized through the Red Sea, Pharaoh dead upon the shore, into the wilderness where he will teach us and, and develop us. So before we, we really begin to feel the burning heat of the, of the desert and the gritty sand in our teeth, let's just take a moment to understand the key themes and the key lessons of the wilderness journey. As I said at the start, that's really the objective tonight. We can't go through a lot of detail of the incidents, but, but just to give a sense of the total picture or the total objective in the wilderness. And, and in going through this study and talking to, to a number of people about the wilderness wanderings, we find that that's, that so often we perceive the wilderness in a very negative way, as if it's a time of failure, of punishment and strife, that, that there's this sense of, of the overriding message from the wilderness as if there's a testing of a generation failing in brutal times in the wilderness. And, and that is true. But we shall find there is so much more beside. And, and there's a risk that in seeing just that perspective, it leads us to colour our perception of what's happening in the wilderness. And more particularly, to colour our perception of who the God of the wilderness is. We see the restrictions of the law. We see the thunder and the fear at Mount Sinai, the testing of God's people in, in extremity to the point of failure. We see summary judgments that condemn a generation to the harsh environments of the wilderness until every last carcass is left withering upon the desert sands. But bear with me for a moment and, and allow this evening, God willing, to convince that the point of the wilderness journey is actually to, to show that in spite of everything, Yahweh was able to bring his people into the promised land. And he does so because of the perfection of his character, of who he, he is. And let's understand that those 40 years in the wilderness were a fundamental requirement to transform the people of God from a motley band of slaves in Egypt into God's people, a conquering nation. Exodus 13 tells us, uh, if you've still got it there in verse 17, it came to pass when Pharaoh had 
let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. So 11 days journey and they could have been in the land, but God knew that that wasn't what was best for his people. The people weren't ready for that. They were slaves, used to being told what to do. They were untrained with no structure. Just bringing them into the land would have been disastrous. And it's just the same for us. We're utterly unfit for the kingdom at the beginning. It's the work of the Father over a lifetime to develop us and transform us and mould us until we become his children, who he will bring into the kingdom in his glory. We could say that the theme of the wilderness is how Yahweh works with his people. The purpose of the wilderness journey is to show God's character. Just share that screen again. So here's the purpose of of the wilderness. Yahweh's power and his character allows him to deliberately and purposely develop his people over a sustained period of time. He's acknowledging their weakness. He understands their tendency to fail, but he provides for them and he saves them where necessary through the intercessor while never compromising his own righteousness. See, this is the perfection of God's character, isn't it? His righteousness is always upheld, but he's working to develop and to transform his people and to bring them at last, as I've said, into the promised land. Does it sound familiar? Well, of course it is, because that's exactly the same process that God's undertaking with us. He's exactly the same God who's dealing with us in exactly the same way. And that's the power of it, because it means we can utterly rely then on his ability to develop us and to transform us until we enter into the promised land in faith. So if this is the case, why do we tend to see the wilderness story as such a negative time? Well, I think there's two reasons for this. One is the fact that we tend to have inaccuracies in our stories on the wilderness that have created a bit of a myth. Tell tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the image you probably have of the wilderness wanderings is is that for 40 miserable years, a starving, thirst-crazed multitude slogged through the, the searing desert sands, desperate for life. It was a miserable, barren existence as punishment for their wrongdoing. But God's message about the wilderness journey is completely different. Deuteronomy 6, verse 23, he brought us out from thence, from Egypt, that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. I'll read that again because I think this is the key principle of the wilderness. Color it in, if you will. Mark it down because this, I believe, summarizes exactly what the wilderness wanderings is about. He brought us out from Egypt that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swear unto our fathers. And this is consistent with so many uh, messages, so many uh, quotes in scripture. Psalm 105 verse 43, I'll just rattle through a few for you. He brought forth his people with joy, his chosen with gladness. Deuteronomy 8 verse 4, their raiment waxed not old, neither did their foot swell. Deuteronomy 32 verse 9, in, in fact that whole chapter talks about God's care for his people. But Yahweh's portion is his people. Or or Deuteronomy 8, verse 5, which I'll just read to you. It talks about God chasing them as as a man does his son. Deuteronomy 8 and and verse 5. 
Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so Yahweh thy God chasteneth thee. Well, Deuteronomy 1, verse 31, in, in the wilderness, thou hast seen how that Yahweh thy God bear thee, as a man doth bear his son in all the way ye went. So there's a sense of God bearing his, his nation, as a man takes his son and bears him. Or Deuteronomy 8, verse 16, who fed thee in the wilderness, that he might humble thee, that he might prove thee, and listen to this, to do thee good at thy latter end. See, God's focus is on what he is doing with his people. And there are many other quotes besides which speak deeply of the protection and care and love shown by the Father to his people through the wilderness. Yes, let's be clear, there were times of failure, of deep failure. There were times of deep testing. But the message is that God's care is always sufficient and his overshadowing arm always near. And the second reason I think that we see the wilderness journey as a deeply negative time is that we fail to see the powerful type that's intended here in the journey. We instead see the, the, the wilderness time as, a, as an individual commentary on the salvation of individuals of God's people. A commentary on whether those individuals will be in the kingdom and, and therefore placing ourselves in that same space. We, we imagine ourselves being there and it becomes a very harsh perspective. But from God's perspective, there's a powerful type here at work. There's a beautiful and a very deep type of God's way of salvation. You see, we see individuals being judged in the wilderness, but the Father sees a nation and its people being developed and a pattern of how he saves his people laid down. The key is that we come to see the type being portrayed here in the wilderness journey. The way of of the wilderness journey is, has been portrayed is, is done specifically for our sake to show us an example is what Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 10. You can turn it up if you, if you desire. I'll just read you from it though. Here, 1 Corinthians 10. Now all these things happen unto them, unto Israel in the wilderness, for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to the man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. That's First Corinthians 10. And in that, Paul gives us three critical insights into the wilderness journey. The first is that, that the wilderness journey is an example to us. It's an ensample. The Greek word is the word tupos or a type. It's a die that's struck. It's the analogy. God wants us to see the wilderness journey as a type, as an example. And the second point is that the temptation they faced is a common temptation to what we face, a temptation that has always occurred for man. What Israel struggled with in the wilderness is exactly what we struggle with today. We are, we're being told by Paul, right now in the wilderness facing the same struggles because we are human. And the third point is that God is faithful. In spite of our weakness, God's faithful and powerful to make a way of escape. So it's important to be clear then, the wilderness story is not about the eternal salvation of each individual. Yes, for some it is clear, such as Korah, Dathan and Abiram, 
as referenced in Jude. They won't be in the kingdom. But for the vast majority, it's not, we're not told about their eternal salvation. Although there are indications, and Brother Stephen Palmer covers this off beautifully as well, that, that the, that first generation who died were faithful in passing on the lessons they had learned to the next generation who would enter the land. So if it's not focused then on the individuals in the wilderness, what's the point of the story? Well, we've seen in Corinthians here that it involves a type. And when we come to this type, we find that there are actually multiple types included. So let's just share the screen again. So we find this picture then of, of what the wilderness uh, uh, journey is actually about in this type that I've got on the screen before you. It's a type of the salvation, the process of salvation that the Father would go through for us. He takes us out of Egypt through the Passover that is saved in Christ. We were slaves to sin. We're saved in Christ. We go through the waters of baptism into the wilderness, and the wilderness then becomes a picture of our mortal life of testing and probation, put to death the old man of sin, living the new man in Christ, sustained by God and tested by God in the wilderness until eventually we are brought to the edge of the promised land and cross over the Jordan, death overthrown in immortality into the kingdom. Now that won't be a surprise for you, but we've all seen that pattern before. But what I'm hoping you're beginning to see is this, this, the fact that this story is very clearly focused upon this, that the message of the wilderness journey is all about the enormity of this type, because this type that is laid down here becomes the pattern of God, how God always works with his people. The fact that God always delivers his people in this way. And so actually, when you look at it, then we find that the wilderness could be a type of, of a whole number of different areas. It's the salvation delivered from Egypt. But actually, it's also about the development of the ecclesia, or it could be about Israel's future salvation through the wilderness of the people under Elijah and into the promised land at last. It's a deeper picture of God's work of salvation for Israel over, over 4,000 years. But then again, it could be the, the picture of his work with us as individuals. And it could also be a picture of the salvation provided to all the earth through the millennial reign. You see, see what, which one is it of all of those types? Well, it's all of them, isn't it? Because the wilderness journey lays out this pattern of how God saves his people that's repeated again and again, and reused again and again. Yahweh overcomes sin every time by a deliberate, consistent approach that depends upon the perfection of his character to work with his people in mercy and truth, in righteousness and peace. So this then becomes the universal type that always applies when God is working with his people. He takes us from slavery and sin, saves us in Christ through baptism, tests us in mortal life and brings us at last into the kingdom. We could summarize it perhaps as God's salvation working through the process of suffering before the glory. So God's process always commences with his people acknowledging their desperate need for him, that he removes his people out of the control of sin 
and brings a clear way of salvation. He, he lays forth a clear way of salvation with righteous requirements, always centered upon his son. He teaches and develops and tests us over a sustained time of probation. And then at last, once we have come to know the perfection of his character and to trust in him, he is able to save us and bring us to that promised salvation. Now, in terms of the, the structure of the wilderness journey, uh, and you've got the handout, uh, hopefully, which provides more detail. Um, and for those of you who, who haven't got it, be uh, happy to provide it afterwards as well. But actually, it's surprising when you go through and start to piece through all these the four uh, books of the, of the wilderness journeys, that there is actually some very significant focused time period involved in, in the wilderness journeys. Uh, as I've got on the screen here, there is, there is a lot of detail and, and actually these black dots in the, at the top there are designed to show the number of events which occur in these areas. So in the first two months, as Israel come out of Egypt, they journey out of Egypt across the Red Sea and then go through a time of testing of, of no food and no water. There's only a period of two months and then they're brought through to, uh, to the Mount Sinai. Then Mount Sinai, in the area of Mount Sinai, they rest there or they stay there for 11 months. And that's really the period where this motley crew are bound together into a nation, given a law, given some structure, and learn to fear and to accept God. So 11 months at, at Sinai, laying that foundation for them. And then there's 11 months where they journey from, K, from Sinai through to Kadesh Barnea, which Kadesh Barnea is up in, in the Judean um, desert and actually at the very edge of the promised land. It's right on the boundary of the promised land. So Israel were brought through that, uh, that uh, wilderness around this side and up into Kadesh Barnea through 11 months. Uh, and that, I believe, is the, is the time period or is the area known as that great and terrible wilderness, that that particular area was the area of, of intensity for them. But then you've got this significant chunk of 37 years where there is actually very, very little information provided. We're told of, of the uh, incident of, of Korah and the budding of, of Aaron's rod. So we've got two events, and I've also put a third one in there, which is about a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath as well, in the absence of any other, and where it, where it turns up in Leviticus. But you see, there's a significant period of time, the largest chunk of time where actually very little information is provided and very little events occur. But then, in its final year, there's an explosion of events that occur as the nation are taken from Kadesh and back down through uh, into the wilderness, through that great and terrible wilderness again, in a final testing of their people, and are brought up through the eastern side of the land, conquer the land, and are brought at last to the edge of Jordan, where they cross over and hold their Passover in Gilgal. 40 years, we're told, to the day. So there's a, a big chunk of detail at the start of the journey and a chunk of detail at the end of the journey, but there's nothing or very little in the middle, being the majority. It's a span of 37 years. And uh, hopefully uh, not too much later we'll touch base on why that might be as well. So the structure of the four wilderness books then, which I've also uh, got uh, summarised for you in, uh, in that handout, is that Exodus takes the people from Egypt through 
the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, and then a period of, of 11 months through Mount Sinai. It's redemption from Israel. It's crossing the Red Sea, provided for in the wilderness, given food and water, and then the law given at, at Sinai. So that is what Exodus encompasses and has a strong focus on the concepts of the tabernacle. Yes, it talks about the inauguration of the priests, but interestingly, if you read that closely, you'll find the priests are connected very strongly to the tabernacle. In fact, after describing all the detail of the priests, it has a big, uh, significant uh, focus in a number of chapters on the tabernacle, then a few chapters on the priests, and then says, after talking about the priests, thus was the work of the tabernacle finished. And so, and so Exodus really, in its key theme, is the theme of the tabernacle. Leviticus, on the other hand, is clearly focused on the offerings. It's not time and place specific. In fact, the only real event that's noted is Nadab and Abihu, and that's because of their role as priests and because they become an offering. Yes, it talks about the priests and their role, but always in relation to the, the concepts of the offerings. The book of Numbers covers the final month at Sinai and the journey from, wilderness, from through the wilderness into Kadesh Barnea, which largely becomes their base for the, for the rest of that 37 years. And then after a substantial break, it picks up the story again with that final year through to the edge of the Promised Land. So the Exodus sort of the start of the journey, Leviticus a focus on the offerings with very little events. Numbers is about the... Uh, the wilderness from, from uh, the wilderness from Sinai through to Kadesh Barnea, and then that final year. And then clearly, the book of Deuteronomy is given in the final few months before crossing into Jordan and is looking back on lessons from the wilderness. It's the second covenant, as, it, as its name means, and talks about Yahweh's ability to save. It talks about Moses as the intercessor and conquest of the land. And from Deuteronomy 28 to 32 is one of the most powerful and earliest of, of Bible prophecies on Israel's history and their future and their final glorification. So happy to uh, answer any questions on that later uh, as, as well after the, after the class. But that's a, a very flying visit through what those um, four books are about. Interestingly, the book of Numbers has, its, has as its focus the numbering of Israel. At the start of the book, Israel are numbered, and that occurs in Sinai after the incident of the golden calf. And at the end of the book, they are numbered again. And, and actually, the whole point of this book is that the events that have happened in the wilderness, the events that are covered in Numbers, impact on the numbering of, of, uh, within the tribes of Israel. And more particularly, it then describes the process by which the tribes are given their inheritance. And that inheritance is impacted by the number in, within that tribe. So in other words, the incidents that have occurred in the wilderness have impacted on the number of people within a tribe. And that has a direct impact on the inheritance they take in the promised land. So coming back to the wilderness then, and back to the very start of the wilderness, they've crossed the Red Sea, and the blistering desert sun burns down upon them for the third consecutive days. 
It's been three days since they triumphantly crossed the Red Sea and they entered hopeful into the wilderness, free at last from Egypt. But now, in the extremity of their thirst and in desperate fear, they face the harsh burning desert. It's three days since they've replenished their water. The people are, are parched and faint. There's three days following the pillar of cloud deeper and deeper into the desert, being led by God and the burning heat of the sun upon them, desperate for water, knowing if they could not reach it soon, they'd die. And, and then there's a murmur goes up and someone has, has spotted at last on the horizon an, an oasis of water. And, and the children of Israel surge forward towards that life-giving water. But as they go to drink it, there's a groan goes up and, and a shriek across the nation because the water is bitter. So here in the desert, they've been pushed to the extremity of life itself. And at the very last, as the Father seems to have provided, that life-giving gift is turned to death. And the children of Israel do the only thing they can do. They cry out to Moses, what shall we drink? And God understands and in his gentleness then provides a tree, the way of salvation, a reference to the crucifixion of Christ that is flung into the water and that water is made sweet and drinkable. And at last they can plunge their faces into that water and refresh themselves. They can drink deeply of that wellspring of life. So again, we ask that question, why? Why at the very commencement of that journey in the wilderness, having gone through so much in Egypt, does God lead his people out into the edge of death? These are hardened slaves used to going without in the boiling desert sun, but they are left in the extremity of life without water for three days. Why does he not provide water at the very beginning. Well, it speaks to the heart of our subject again. It's the work of temptation and trial and the overwhelming ability of the Father to provide us, provide for us in the wilderness. But he does it in his time, according to his purpose, when he's taken a moment in his wisdom to develop our trust, our confidence in him. Of, of this incident in the, in the wilderness, Moses records in, in Exodus 15, there he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them and said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of Yahweh thy God and do that which is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians. I am Yahweh that healeth thee. There he proved them, we're told. So right at the start of the wilderness journey, God's laid a pattern of testing, of proving them. And his message is, you listen to me. You hearken diligently. You give ear to what I've said and keep it. And in return, I'll not punish you with the diseases of Egypt. I will heal you. There are a number of times through the wilderness journey where God tests his people in the wilderness, sometimes intensely, where the basic necessities of life are not freely provided. It's a trial to the extreme. Even in these first few months, they go through this, this story we've talked about of, of Mara, the bitter waters, to prove them three days without water. And then immediately after that, they have no food. What are we going to do for food, they're asking. And there's this murmuring that comes through. But he provides food to them. He understands their need and he provides for them. And then Exodus 17, not long after again, the, the incident of, of Rephidim with no water and what's known as the water of, uh, of Meribah, 
or strife or contention. And that goes back and retests exactly the same lesson that he had already taught them at Mara. They're in the wilderness with no water. Can they trust in him? And they fail. But God proves them, as he says in Psalm 81, verse 7, I've proved thee at the waters of Meribah. Unfortunately, we haven't got time to go through the provision of the manna and of the water in the wilderness. It's God's way of sustenance. Men did eat angels' food, uh, we're told, in the Psalms. God provided perfectly for them, but he proved them at the same time. So what is the Father doing? They're the fundamentals of life. Three days without water, no food, no water. They despaired of life, will die in the wilderness, they said. And they had every reason to think that on a purely human level. Why in the first few months would God prove them so intensely? Well, see, it is back to that work of development and of testing, as he did for Adam and Eve in the garden, and as he does for us in our life also. And then just when you think it's done, just when you think they're through the worst, in Exodus 17, the Amalekites arrive and his people are introduced to war. God tells us in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2, Thou shalt remember all the way which Yahweh thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. But see, verse 16 of, of that same chapter, who fed thee in the wilderness which thy fathers uh, with manna which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And so this becomes this theme or this idea of, of God's work with us to do thee good in our latter end. First Peter 1 tells us, Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than the gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Christ. So what? Well, you know as well as I do that in ecclesial life, under the surface, there's a lot of heartache and a lot of anguish. We've all been through times of heartache and distress. We've had those moments where we felt there was just no way out, where the challenges of life were just too intense for us to face. I only know a few of you here tonight, but I know it's highly likely that many of you are facing difficulties, perhaps illness or debilitating physical struggles, maybe financial burdens or loss of family members. Some of you might be struggling in your relationships or, or struggling with friendships and loneliness. Some of you might be struggling with depression or struggling with your children or even struggling with the world. And there are so many other things beside out there, visible and invisible, that we go through in our life and in our ecclesial life. But the message of the wilderness is that you are not alone. There are many brothers and sisters who are going through those trials with you. If we are God's people, we will suffer trial. And yet we find from Lamentations and such a beautiful picture of, that, that really sums up also God's, God's work with his nation in the wilderness. From Lamentations 3 and verse 22. 
So I get there. Lamentation 3 and verse 22. It is of Yahweh's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. Yahweh is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of Yahweh. And that again is the, is the concepts that God is teaching us and wanting us to understand through the wilderness journey. And so we arrive then at Sinai. The cool peace of the gentle wilderness is broken by a crash of lightning and a rolling thunder. A jagged lightning thrust screams across the sky and the crash that reverberates around the surrounding mountains is, is followed then by another and another until the whole echo of one is lost in the following. And the reverberations quiver through the hearts of the whole congregation gathered here. The story or the picture of, of the moment in Sinai where God descends and reveals himself to his people is a terrifying moment. We're told that God would come down in that mountain. Let me just share the screen with you again that the thick cloud would cover the mountain and from the midst of that mountain a raging fire would descend until Mount Sinai was altogether consumed with smoke. It was ascending like a furnace. Just picture this scene here if you can. There's a tremor that threads across the plains as an earthquake commences and, and the whole mountain seemed to quiver as the noise of the thunder is overwhelmed by the roar of an earthquake that fills the air with a shuddering blast of power, wave after wave. But the power of the earthquake that we've experienced here in, in New Zealand. But, but then somehow across that cacophony of all of that noise, the voice of a trumpet blast begins, and that waxes louder and louder and longer and longer until its shrieking voice pierces to the hearts of God's people, and they end up fleeing from before the mountain, standing far off. Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. See the, the terror they feel here. Israel has just seen the incredible power in the, in the salvation that God can accomplish in Egypt. They'd seen the devastation of Pharaoh and the Egyptian nation. They'd witnessed the incredible events there. They knew absolutely that God existed. They'd experienced his power even before Sinai. But now, just a few short days later, they're gathered in Horeb to commence the transformation into the people of God. Yes, they know God exists. That's one thing. But who God is, and how they can learn to trust him and to love him is the work of the wilderness. So we ask the question again, why? Why after all of that convincing evidence that God existed so powerfully and his protection for them on the journey to Horeb, why here at the very start of his work should God reveal himself in this way to Israel? And again, the answer is powerful because it highlights the long-term outcome that God is working to with his people. This deliberate, patient, wise plan to develop and to transform his people. Speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. But it's confusing, isn't it? Is this our God? Is this the God we know? Well, it has to be. 
because Malachi 3.2 tells us that God does not change. I am Yahweh, I change not, and therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So God is always the same. That's why Israel was not consumed. So why, again, did God present himself in this way? Well, it's because Sinai is the beginning of the nation. They've arrived in a rabble, a disorganized, runaway slaves, no system of law, hygiene, education, or even sustenance. And just 11 months later, they leave as a structured, well-founded nation. Yes, God has introduced his fear. But he has a purpose in that, doesn't he? Because Proverbs 1 tells us that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning beginning of knowledge. To fear Yahweh is to begin to comprehend who he is. The phenomenal power at his control. This is the one who stretches out the heavens as a span and weighs the mountains in the palm of his hand. All that creation and all of its magnificence. The power to cleave open the Red Sea. And now all of that power displayed at Sinai. But you see, God's purpose here in Sinai is is not so much to terrify his people, but it's to show his people that he is working with them, and more particularly, that he is working with Moses. Exodus 19 and verse 9 gives this, this context to us. Yahweh said to Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. So God's purpose here was so that the people would understand that God was, one, existed, which they knew, but secondly, that God was speaking through Moses. And as a result of that conviction, that they would listen to Moses' words and hear him forever. The time at Sinai is actually a very busy time. I feel quite sorry for an 80-year-old Moses who, who had to go through these seven different ascents of the mountain. Um, I suspect you might not be able to see this on on your screen uh, very well, but it is in the handout that you have. And we won't go through this in in any detail at all. But the point here is is that there is a number of times where Moses, as the intercessor, is drawn up into the mountain, speaking with God, and then comes back and brings those ideas back. Just a couple of key points to highlight out of this time. The first is that after Moses ascends up into the heavens, uh, as it were, or up into, up into uh, Horeb, he's given over a period of 40 days and, and 40 nights the fullness of the, of the law. All the amazing detail of the law is given in Exodus 21 through to 30, 31. 40 days in which Moses is elevated to the glory of the law. But in that same period of 40 days, Israel rejected God. And it's the same challenge for us as well in Christ's absence. See, the question isn't in Israel's mind, does God exist? But who is God? And what's his relevant to them? And more particularly, what is his purpose with them? Can they trust in him? And after 40 days, they'd come to the conclusion that Moses was gone, that they needed new gods to go with them. Here they were, stuck in the wilderness, and and Moses was gone, who represented God, and therefore they couldn't trust in God. And see, it, it speaks again to the heart of what God's doing with us. Yes, we can understand that God exists, but unless we come to understand who he is and the perfection of his character, 
then after just 40 days, we can end up like Israel, going astray from God and following the golden calf. But God's work is always to the long term. It's always about his future focus. There's this beautiful phrase here in Ecclesiastes. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever for the Olam or for the kingdom. So the question then isn't the fault of the God of Horeb, but it's the, it's the question of how his people perceive him and how they respond to him. Israel saw his terror and fled from him. Moses fellowshiped with him in the glory of who he was. But you see, often we will focus, as Israel did, on the fear of, of who God was at Horeb. But actually we find that in, in Horeb, Yahweh reveals himself as the perfection of his character. These words we know well in Exodus 34. I'm Yahweh, Yahweh El, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. See, this is who God is at Horeb. God reveals himself in the perfection of his character and how he will work with his people in these beautiful phrases here in Exodus 34. He's merciful and gracious and long-suffering. See, the challenge that we learn from Horeb is how we perceive God. Do we see him as a severe God? Or do we understand his righteousness and his work with us in our life? And I think this comes to the heart of what God wants us to understand about him. This is the key message he's trying to teach his people in the wilderness. It's life eternal, we see in John 17, to know thee the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. But I believe our struggle is that we often equate the concept of righteousness and mercy to goodness and severity. As if we see righteousness as being one of, of judgment only, and, and therefore God's severity coming out, and we see the severity of the God of, of Horeb. But righteousness is not judgment. They're two different things. And often we go through the struggle of seeing, of seeing a balance of God's character, as it were. We, we, we have this concept or this, this phrase that we use of being the perfect balance between righteousness and mercy. And whilst that's true, and I understand what's being said in that, the risk with that is that we end up perceiving God in an unwise way. Because if it's the concept of a balance, then there's the risk, as we see on that picture on the left, there's a risk that, that, that at times we see God's righteousness being upheld and, and, and there's, a, there's a, time, a chance also that in our own life we respond in the same way and, and that we show righteousness or severity and then, and then as if to balance it, we overcompensate and we show mercy and care and, and we always go through the sense of, of trying to, to work with these two. But the reality is, from the Father's perspective, is righteousness is always upheld. He will never act unrighteously. But as soon as his righteousness is upheld, his mercy is shown to the utmost. That mercy rejoices against judgment, but never at the expense of God's righteousness. See, this perception of who God is 
actually is the key to the wilderness journey. It's the key to the perception of the God of Hor. So just in conclusion, let's turn across to, to 1 Kings chapter 9. Because I think this is the message that we find then also from a man who went to Horeb. In fact, think of the parallels here of Elijah, this man who goes to Horeb. He's given angels food on his journey to Horeb. And there he faces the, the, the earthquake and the wind and the fire. There's this parallel between what Elijah experiences and what Israel went through as well. And the thing is that Elijah is struggling to understand this perception of the character of who God is. First Kings 9 and verse 4. Uh, sorry, I've got a wrong reference there. That must be Second Kings 9 and verse 4. No, and I can't even find it there. Okay. Um, and rather than reading to you given the time, actually, I just want to take you through the picture of what happens here with Elijah anyway. So, so as I said, just perceive the, the parallels of, of what, uh, what is going on here. Men that eat angels' food, Elijah was taken down, given that food by the angels and brought down. But what's his point? Why has he gone to Horeb? Because he's saying, I'm the only one left. And they, they seek my life to take it away. What's his point to the father? Father, in the same way as you did at Horeb, bring now judgments, bring that, that uh, fire down from heaven, as it were. It's the spirit of, of Elijah here, where he's, where he's demanding that God should judge his people. I, am, I only am left, and they seek my life. But God's question to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And now pours the story of, of the fact that he's the only one left, and and they seek his life. And God brings him out. And he shows him the earthquake and the wind and the fire. And the compelling point is God, Yahweh, was not in the earthquake. Yahweh was not in the wind. Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Yahweh has revealed himself in the still small voice. It was the lesson he was showing to his people at Horeb that he would be revealed in the perfection of all his character and all his glory. And Elijah needed to learn the same lesson as well. You know, here at Horeb, Elijah did not understand those concepts. After the message of the still small voice, God repeated his question, what do you hear, Elijah? And he gave exactly the same response again. I'm the only one left. And God said, right, you go back. You anoint Hazel, Jehu, and Elisha to be prophet in your room. Elijah, I'm going to replace you in your capacity as the prophet. Cast your mantle over him because your work is done. And God's message to Elijah is, I cannot use you, Elijah. I need another prophet in your room because you will not understand who the God of Horeb is. He's taken away from Elisha, separated from him through a whirlwind. But interestingly, in Second Chronicles 21 and verse 12, we find there's a king who receives a letter from Elijah the prophet well after he is removed. 
And see, God was still working with Elijah. He was still developing him. He'd removed him from the office of the prophet, but now he was teaching and working with Elijah. Go and learn what this meaneth, essentially he was saying. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You've refused to understand who the God of Horeb is, Elijah. You're no longer fit to be a prophet for my people. It needs Elisha. God saves the, the Yehoshua, the Joshua of God's providing. And this so perfectly encapsulates the God of Horeb for us. He's removed from office, Elijah, but not cast off. Because Yahweh continued to work with him and to develop him. Until in Malachi 4, we, we find that Yahweh will send out Elijah again. In the words of, of Malachi 4, says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. In the kingdom, Elijah, you can finish your work. See, God's purpose in Horeb, God's purpose throughout the wilderness wanderings is to convince and to teach us that he is working with us as his people. He's teaching us to come to understand who he is so that we can learn to reveal the perfection of that character in our own life also. He's provided the intercessor, that Moses for us, who constantly is with us, working on our behalf. He guides us through the wilderness with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He encapsulates us in Christ through the manna and through the water and through the offerings and through the feasts. Every, every place we turn, everywhere we look, we are encapsulated by Christ. Then at last, in the perfection of his character, he will bring us into the promised land, into the perfection of his glory and the wonder of immortality. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen.